Greetings, everyone. I'm Gabby Pierce, Director of Member Relations and ASHP Staff Liaison to the Section of Specialty Pharmacy Practitioners here at ASHP. Thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature on specialty pharmacy from the exceptional programming at the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. So starting here at the beginning, first we want to begin by just defining quality and compliance programs specifically with health system specialty pharmacy. So you will notice we did separate them out into quality programs and compliance programs. So a quality program um, includes metric identification and, and tracking. It includes establishing measurable goals for those metrics and designing quality improvement initiatives. Common components of a quality program include our annual quality plan, a quality management committee, and the annual quality program evaluation. All members of accredited specialty pharmacies are very, very familiar with these components. Moving on to a compliance program, a compliance program we defined as a system of processes, policies, and procedures and controls that are developed to ensure compliance with all of these applicable rules, regulations, and policies. Some common components of a compliance program include a compliance officer, a monitoring plan, and an auditing process. So in summary, quality programs ensure that the service is consistently meeting expectations and goals, while a compliance process is ensuring adherence to these requirements. So what our group quickly realized is that health system specialty pharmacies, we need to make sure we have both a quality program as well as a compliance program in place to maintain our accreditation requirements. I'm sure you're all very familiar with the components I have listed on this slide here, but let's reiterate the importance of these concepts. So a robust quality and compliance program allows health system specialty pharmacies to do the following things that we have listed. First, it helps us demonstrate our value by our quality and operational metric tracking and our goals. Second, it helps distinguish our, our specialty pharmacy program from all the other pharmacy programs within our health system. Third, it serves as internal and external validation for our services. Internal validation meaning identifying and proving our services and our success, both to our colleagues as well as our institutional leadership. And external validation meaning obviously proving and identifying our services and our access to external stakeholders. And then lastly, this helps meet various stakeholder requirements and helps maintain the high performance levels of our program. So now I want to go into a bit more detail regarding our stakeholder requirements and how that influences our quality and compliance programs. So as we all know, health systems, specialty pharmacies, we have a lot of people we must answer to. We have a lot of requirements for many stakeholders. You'll see them listed on this slide. That includes obviously our accreditation bodies, our payers, manufacturers, and of course regulatory agencies. So I'm going to explain how each of these stakeholders influence our compliance program. So first, starting with accreditation bodies, so just to name a couple requirements that I'm sure we're all aware of. They have various clinical criteria, staff trainings, and quality metrics that we all need to meet. Next, moving on to our payers. So we all know that some network applications require performance metrics, such as error rates, adherence rates, and prescription delivery performance metrics to gain acceptance into their network. 
Third, manufacturers may require performance metrics as well, such as dispensing data, adherence rates, and that's um, in order to dispense the restricted distribution medications. And lastly, of course, regulatory agencies like the DEA, State Board of Pharmacy, um, they do require self-inspections and ongoing audits. So with all these stakeholders that we need to answer to, they require data to be reported at various frequencies to re remain in good standing with their organization. So we need a quality process in place to produce these metrics as well as an ongoing compliance process for performance management. So that brings us to our issue. So all accredited health system specialty pharmacies were all aware of these stakeholder requirements and we all meet these stakeholder requirements. But what our group very quickly realized <clears throat> is we don't have any sort of universally available tool to help us maintain this process along the way. A lot of us has been, have been doing this now for you know, three, four, five, six, seven years and we're finding we need a little bit of help along the way so we're not um, becoming too repetitive here. So we all have robust quality programs with all those components that I mentioned previously. Um, but where the practice gap exists that you can see on the slide, we struggle with the implementation of an ongoing compliance program. So I'm going to hand it over to Huda and she's going to talk about the challenges and what our group did about that. Thank you. All right, good morning everyone. So why is it's so hard to manage compliance. So like Lisa said, there's multiple stakeholders. You might have one, two, three accreditation bodies that you're managing. You've got the payers, the drug manufacturers. Perhaps with the drug manufacturers, you've got a limited distribution network contract, or you're following REMS requirements. You've got the State Board of Pharmacy, the DEA, and really the list goes on. So these multiple stakeholders also have different standards and requirements. Some overlap, some don't. If they overlap, are they the same frequency? So the example I think of here is the Illinois Board of Pharmacy and the DEA. So the DEA requires controlled substance inventory every two years, while the Illinois Board of Pharmacy requires a controlled substance inventory annually. I have many more examples I could go on. I can talk about how accreditation bodies have different requirements in terms of policy and procedure review and the frequency of policy and procedure review and so on. These standards and requirements require proactive management. So how do you keep up with it? How do you keep up with it in a proactive manner? So you don't want to be in a situation where you're like, hey, your act is on site next month. What did we miss in the last three years? To be proactive, you need dedicated personnel. So who's doing this? Is it on top of their day-to-day -day requirements? Are they also managing staff? Does compliance get the priority and the time that it deserves? because the alternative is non-compliance or even loss of an accreditation status. So we talk about the resources for managing compliances, but what about the resources for data analytics? A lot of accrediting bodies have annual requirements for reporting. So who's managing your data? Who's determining your data capabilities? Who's sourcing your data? Who's merging your data? Who's validating your data? Then it's time for renewal. Your cycle may be every two years, it may be every three years, and then it's a year or two out. And now they've published a new set of standards. Is it a minor change? Is it a major change? Are there new standards? Are there an elimination of standards? And that cycle starts over. Now you've got to assess the new standards, determine who's taking the lead, update data analytics, and so on. And lastly, if you're like me, you're managing multiple programs. So you've got specialty pharmacy, but maybe you have a mail order program accreditation, or a home infusion accreditation, or a digital pharmacy accreditation. 
So these were the challenges. Um, these challenges were the main driver for the 2021-2022 SAG. And we developed a work group of compliance experts and tasked them with creating a solution for these challenges. So what we created was a comprehensive list of requirements, descriptions, frequencies, and suggested timelines. And how we plan to use it is to, to share this tool and have you adapt it for your organization and then build out what your compliance program looks like at your own organization. So this is a quick snapshot of what the tool looks like. So quick orientation. In the gray rows, you'll see the five main categories we're discussing today. Human resources, patient management, operations, patient experience, and regulatory and quality. Within each category, you'll see three or four elements. We call these our critical compliance elements. So five categories and 17 total critical compliance elements. So you may be wondering, well, how'd you come up with these 17? Is this list comprehensive? So what we had our panel of experts from our different institutions do is select the 17 most critical or most difficult elements to discuss today. They're experts because they've all been through multiple accreditations, successful accreditations at, at their own ind institutions. So you have two ways you can kind of follow along. You've got the paper form that you may have picked up at the door, but this is also available in your ASHP Live app. So if you navigate to our session, you can search audit in the toolbar, go into the handout, and then scroll all the way to the bottom of the handout, and you'll see a link. So the link is listed under Compliance Tools Supplemental Resources. You can click that link, and it'll actually, if you have Google Sheets, it'll open up in that app. You'll be able to then export and save that file and edit it um, throughout the presentation. So what we ask from you guys is to follow along, and after each element is presented, rank your organization as red or green. So red, meaning, yeah, maybe not so compliant with this particular element, or green, meaning, yes, we're compliant, we're good to go. At the end of each category that's presented, we'll ask, we'll ask a polling question and ask the group to share, do you feel that your organization is mostly compliant or mostly non-compliant? So again, we encourage you to participate, rate your organization or your program for each element, share what your feedback is at the end of each category, and this will help facilitate the discussion we have planned at the end of the session. So this is what your tool should look like, maybe a little different, because uh, this is a, a PDF. Um, but like I mentioned, in the black rows is the main categories that you'll hear from each panelist. So each panelist will present one category, and then the columns, in the first column, you'll see it's the compliance element. So what is the element of compliance? The second column is the description, so describing what the element is. The third column and the fourth column are the recommended individual and recommended frequency. So again, these are our recommendations on who should take the lead for this particular element and how often do you have to visit or ensure that you've met compliance with this particular element. The last column is the status of the pharmacy. So this is where if you're working in the Google document, you'll be able to type in red or green. If you're working on your um, handout, you'll be able to write in red or green. The fourth element of compliance is clinical protocols, which are reviewed for evidence-based medicine, best practice, and optimal workflow. 
The Quality and Accreditation Manager and Clinical Coordinator oversee any updates to clinical protocols. It is considered the responsibility of the clinical, special, or clinical pharmacist to monitor for updates in their area of practice. It occurs minimum annually, but there are various reminders and opportunities for reassessment. We have monthly meetings for clinic teams that care for patients falling under the umbrellas of oncology or non-oncology. And often, individual pharmacists will reach out based on updates related to new evidence or guidelines or newly accessed medications. And so that often prompts a check-in with everyone at our weekly staff meetings to see if anyone else has updates. So this is a screenshot that depicts some of the items collected in our routine clinical assessment forms with the individual components along the left column, followed by content options in the subsequent columns for our cardiology, oncology, and hepatitis C programs. It's a snapshot of how our clinical protocols by disease state, medication, or clinic-specific components are really primarily built into our documentation system. This is done through templates and tasks with mandatory accreditation and best practice-related considerations. So then they're individualized for specific clinical areas, primarily by their respective pharmacists caring for those patients. For our oncology program specifically, there are treatment plans for all chemotherapy regimens built out in our EMR. The fifth element of compliance is patient care documentation. This is an audit of patient records to ensure documentation compliance with usage of approved progress note templates, standardized forms, and commonly used phrases. The quality and accreditation manager audits with supervisor involvement as needed. So we divide the number of pharmacists by quarter to evenly space this out throughout the year with newer staff audited during their third and fourth quarter after starting. So how do we document? We switched our patient management program software from Theragy to the Epic Specialty Pharmacy Compass Rose module just about a year ago. So a majority of our clinical pharmacists were documenting in Epic prior to the conversion though. But this slide has some helpful documentation definitions to understand the audit tool coming next. So for tasks, they're essentially a date and time stamped piece of evidence for completing patient care associated activities and they're categorized as support staff versus pharmacist responsibilities. Our assessments were previously described in the clinical protocols element. And then we have progress note templates for our pharmacists um, that are specialty pharmacy wide and overseen by the quality and accreditation manager. But the individual pharmacists create customization by clinic, disease state, or medication as necessary to meet their needs. So this is a screenshot of our audit tool. Only mandatory marked M in the far left column items are used to determine overall compliance scoring, and these are essentially accreditation required items. The information is captured in a REDCap database, and the process is as follows. So we have policy that outlines the specific criteria and expectations. The number of records and frequency of audits is based on tenure. So mandatory accreditation related and best practice items are audited. And then we have one-to-ones with individuals to review whether their records were compliant or not and just discuss any findings of note. Staff feedback has been that this is helpful and they want to continue doing it indefinitely. The audit's repeated if the records are non-compliant 
And then a corrective action plan is developed with their supervisor if documentation remains non-compliant with a repeat audit. And so if corrective action is needed, it would be incorporated into their annual performance evaluation as an area for improvement. We currently address support staff documentation issues that are identified during the pharmacist auditing, but our plan is to start begin formally auditing individual support staff in the same way as the clinical pharmacists. We've had a lot of lessons learned with this process. Most importantly, keep it feasible. So we started out using an accreditation template and quickly had to shorten the list of items to audit based on that which we actually have direct control over. Um, the other is to limit the number of records to audit once someone's compliant. So if it's confirmed in the first year upon hire that someone's compliant, um, then we'll reduce the number. So we audit five records in the third and fourth quarter after hire, and then if they're compliant, it's reduced to three records for the annual rotation thereafter. The sixth element of compliance is patient educational and marketing materials, which is really oversight of all the materials that patients receive for accuracy and any necessary updates. The quality and accreditation manager oversees this with members of the clinical committee assigned um, as the individual items for review. So our clinical committee consists of all of our clinical pharmacists, several management and admin team members, and our PGY2 specialty pharmacy admin and leadership resident. After an initial approval process, individuals are assigned to review the materials minimum annually with, of course, updates as needed throughout the year. These diagrams depict the process for initial material approval, which occurs one time at our institution. So for patient education materials, the clinical team identifies need for something. They bring the initial content for review typically to our clinical coordinator or to our quality and accreditation manager. And then it's reviewed by the health literacy expert librarian from our health systems library. And then final approval occurs by our therapeutics committee. For marketing materials, typically administration or management will identify a need, and then the material is reviewed by our health systems brand center. So after the previously described initial approval, materials are reviewed a minimum of annually. This is a screenshot of the comprehensive database that the quality and accreditation manager maintains for all the materials. It's reviewed biannually to track the columns that you can see shown. So name, who's responsible, origin date of the material, review dates, where we store it, and who needs to know if it gets updated. Typically, clinical staff are assigned to patient education handouts and then admin or management to marketing materials. Some lessons learned with this process are, one, that it's difficult to manage without someone overseeing it. So sending reminders helps because most people don't just remember to do this on their own. It's also helpful to track both review and revision dates as per the footnote shown here, um, but only revision date is recorded in the document itself at our institution. After you've been around for a few years, we really tried to minimize the amount of unnecessary information on the materials. And also be sure to track all locations where the documents are routinely stored. It's really challenging to make sure that old versions aren't hanging around, but of course this can be a potential safety issue depending on the material. The seventh and final element of compliance for the patient management program is its evaluation, which is a review of various outcomes. So our panel discussed quite a bit as a group that we all handle this differently. 
but most commonly it's the clinical committee. So at my institution, the responsible party depends on the outcome of interest. So at Rochester, it's also the pharmacy finance and administration team and quality committee. Our quality committee consists of various specialty pharmacy staff, leadership, a quality officer, and a physician. And this whole process occurs minimum annually. This is a sample template that we would provide to payers, prescribers, or patients as evidence of our patient management program evaluation. So outcome examples are shown under the nature of request column. For clinical outcome, it's adherence measured as proportion of days covered, which is reviewed by the quality committee biannually. For the financial outcome, our finance and admin team generates monthly reports summarizing social work assistance pulled from our dispense data and grouped by clinic area to summarize cost savings benefits, and then it's reviewed by our director. For the quality of life outcome, patients are asked a medication-related quality of life question with findings reviewed annually by our clinical committee. And then the methodology, strengths, and limitations for each outcome would be addressed. We're gonna start with compliance element number 11, which is phone metrics. So as many of you know, different accreditors, payers, and different stakeholders often require us to report out our phone metrics. Some of the most common being abandonment rate, the average speed of answer, and call volume. This information is typically tracked monthly. I actually receive automatic reports on a more frequent basis as the manager, so we can keep an eye on whether or not we're achieving our goals in time. But we do have our quality committee reviewing them on a quarterly basis as well to look at um, overall trends that we may, may have missed. And here is an example of kind of that dashboard where we put all of that information into. So looking at the total number of incoming calls versus outbound calls, our average speed to answer, and how that compares to our goal. So again, our quality committee sets all of our goals, but is often dictated by the different payers that we have and their potential requirements for our pharmacy. And whether or not we're meeting our, our goal, our service level, um, as well as, again, looking at average speed to answer and call abandonment rates. In addition to phone calls, we do also track our patient and provider complaints. And so this is really making sure that you have a process in place for the documentation, tracking, and analysis of these complaints. Um, we do review them at our quarterly quality committee meetings. Um, depending on the number of complaints that we receive, sometimes we are going through each one individually, um, or we're just kind of looking, again, for overall trends. And how we track those, this is an example of some of the information we track in our patient and provider complaint form. So we do gather a lot of different information, so just the generic uh, overall information related to the complaint. So the patient, what was the nature of the complaint? We have certain areas where we may see more issues than others. Who reported it? Are there certain clinical areas where we're seeing more complaints? Was there any risk associated with the issue or the complaint? What action did we take to resolve it? Did we have to offer service recovery? When were we able to resolve it? What was the timeline to be able to resolve it? Did we end up losing that patient or provider's business due to this issue? Or was it needed and did it need to be escalated to management? And so this is obviously a lot of information. I think when you look at complaints, there's a lot of different things that you can track. So at our institution, we actually choose to track um, the metric of 
are how long it takes us to resolve each complaint or each issue. So this is another kind of dashboard where we look at the number of complaints that we've received and whether or not we've been able to address the issues in a timely manner. Um, again, the goal of seven days was set by our quality committee. And then finally, I think probably the most obvious when we think about the patient experience is the patient and provider satisfaction. And so this is the distribution and analysis of their satisfaction primarily through surveys. This is done annually, at least annually, for both patients and providers. And then the results are reviewed by our quality committee. The actual conduct of the surveys, we have a practice specialist dedicated to our specialty pharmacy quality. So that individual is the one looking at our surveys, making any updates to any of the questions, and then actually making sure that the surveys go out and then collating all of the responses. And so thinking about patient-specific satisfaction assessments, we actually do two different ones at our institution. One is more focused on our pharmacy operations and our call center and patient benefits team, and then the other is focused on our clinical services provided by our pharmacist. And so in general, thinking about our operations side, we're asking the patient how they feel about our overall service, medication packaging, the understanding the cost of their medication, assistance with insurance issues, and then are they okay with the amount of times that we're calling them? And then from the clinical side, we're asking them again about overall service from our clinical pharmacist. Do they feel like they understand their medication, side effects, disease state? And then do they understand how they can get a hold of their pharmacist to ask questions? And then again, these surveys are sent out using five-point Likert scales um, to assess um, how patients feel about our services. And then for providers, we do send out just one survey to our providers and ask um, about how do they feel about the overall level of care patients are receiving from us? Are our pharmacists available to them? Do they feel like the pharmacists are impacting their patient adherence? Would they recommend our services to other providers? And then are, is our service overall meeting their expectations? And again, this is a five-point Likert survey that we send out to our providers. And then once we get all of our information back, we analyze kind of, we look at three main things. First is response rate. So for us, when we send out our surveys to our patients, a lot of times it's putting a physical piece of paper into a random shipping box with a return envelope. So it's collating those paper responses as they come back. Also looking to potentially on that paper, they may add a, like a QR code or a website. So some patients, if they wanna go in and complete it electronically, we can get the information that way or possibly even doing a random sampling if patients are using MyTart or other electronic communication with your pharmacy, sending electronic surveys that way. So are we getting different response rates based on how we're reaching out to our patients and our providers? And then Net Promoter Score is probably one of the more valuable items that we get out of these surveys. And so if you're not familiar, this is essentially how likely are you to recommend our specialty pharmacy services? And if they give a nine or a 10, that means they're definitely gonna promote us. If it's a seven or eight, they're neutral, and anything less than that, they're a detractor. And so this gives us a hard and fast number, like 94%, and we can take that number and we can compare ourselves to our peers, to other specialty pharmacies, to understand where our services line up with them. And then we often use this too to help promote our services when we're reaching out for new contracts and other things. And then I think the, one of the more valuable items with all of our surveys is we do allow comments. And so sometimes a lot of the comments are, it's one of the ways our patients will show their appreciation for our services. So we do get a lot of those types of comments. So the first element I'm going to discuss today 
is the business continuity plan or it's number 14 there on your tracker. So what are we doing? We are developing a business continuity plan and the testing exercises. Who's responsible? Again, we decided that quality committee and how often. So we review our plan annually. However, we complete testing exercises every other year. Before I move on, I do want to quickly discuss the who question um, of this element. Although our quality committee is in charge of the plan and exercises, keep in mind you might also need external stakeholders involved in the drills, including but not limited to facilities, IT, telecom, security, backup location management, public relations, and media affairs. In the event of a true disaster, having on hand Board of Pharmacy, DEA contacts as well. So today I'm going to focus on disaster drill planning. For us, the goal is to restore services to the widest extent possible. Secondly, we wanted to determine the length of the outage and whether or not we have pharmacy access. So what is the scenario? If this, then follow X steps. If that, then follow Y process. Third, making sure we defined our critical areas and systems. And lastly, and most importantly, reviewing not only our strengths, but our areas for improvement. So two deficiencies we've discovered during our last two drills included a glitch in our rapid response software and the need for more definitive and concise checklists and supplier sheets. With rapid response, we found there was a glitch in responding to the email method. It would not capture the response, therefore we had to educate staff to respond either phone or text message until we gained resolution. The second deficiency we found was in regard to our checklist and scenarios. We needed to clearly define which scenario the drill was for, and we realized from 2019 to 2021, the amount of supplies we needed nearly doubled. We reevaluated and created clearly defined scenarios and checklists for future drills. We also removed the proper names of systems and softwares. This slide shows an example of some of the questions we came up with some of the different scenarios. All right, the next element of compliance or number 15 there on your tracker is rule, licensure, and regulation monitoring. So who is, who is in charge of this, the compliance officer or that quality accreditation manager, but possibly in combination with your pharmacist in charge, depending on each state's PIC responsibilities and how often, quarterly. Again, there, however, there may be specific licensures you need to track more on a monthly basis. All right, so this slide shows an example of the permits and licenses that I track monthly. Unfortunately, we have not found a thorough automated process that allows for whole completeness. Therefore, our pharmacy has created a master Excel spreadsheet with filters for tracking. One tab has an overview of all the licensures for a quick check, um, and then it's broken into smaller tabs with issue date, renew by date, et cetera. I also set a task to remind myself to check these monthly. As far as news and law updates, we found use of a current technology platform our health system currently had in place to create quarterly checklists with each entity listed, so FDA, DEA, et cetera. This allowed for easy reporting to show an accrediting body that this was being completed. 
Unfortunately, it's not a nice automated process. However, again, it allows for that whole completeness. Um, this technology platform will also send automatic emails and reminders to, to check these. And lastly, number 16, that annual quality program evaluation. So what is it? Assessing compliance with annual reports and evaluations of the program. Who's in charge? Again, that quality committee and how often annually. All right, this is a busy slide. I'll start off by focusing on the left side of, of the slide. So you put in hard work all year long, reviewing your big ticket items, you know, really getting your team involved, um, reviewing uh, metrics, setting goals, satisfaction and outcome results. Now it's time to review the year and look for trends. Some questions we ask ourselves as we focus now our attention to the funnel um, include, did we meet goals? If we didn't, why? Was there a lack of resources or the right people involved? What can we do to correct? Overall, taking those questions and asking truly how effective and meaningful is our program? And do we have a method of evaluation for these areas? And this is actually something our pharmacy is currently in the process of working on. So once you ask yourself some of those questions, um, and review the information, this can allow for opportunities for process improvements and plan for correction. This graph is an example of our abandonment rate over three years. In 2018, we installed a new software for tracking, and although we still met goal, there was an issue with configurations that we did not anticipate. Therefore, we had to reassess and work with our telecommunications team. Another example of a small spike there, um, in 2021, quarter two and three, was a result of rapid growth and some turnover. And lastly, one of the hardest things to do is get information out to staff, right? I think we all struggle with that. We had some inconsistencies for dissemination of information throughout our teams. Therefore, one way we found to mitigate this issue was to create a monthly newsletter. The Tales from the Script was our old title. Unfortunately, this went away in 2020 with COVID mm -hmm. and sending several folks home to work mm -hmm. remote, but our new resident, who is in the audience here, <laughs> created a new newsletter titled The Specialty Insider, and it is sent out quarterly. It includes important dates, reminders, announcements, um, along with some clinical or operational pearls and additional licensure updates. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Gabby Pierce from ASHP Official and thank you for listening in.